So there's an axiom I'm sure we've all heard before. It's that actions speak louder than words. Have we, ever, have we heard that before? So, so it's a phrase and it's this, it's this idea that's really old. Uh, in fact, in 1860, Abraham Lincoln used this adage in his Cooper Union address. But it's even older than that. In 1736, it appears in a collection entitled The Melancholy State of Province. And still older, in 1693, it appears in Thomas Manson's Book of Sermons. And still older, in 1628, the phrase appears in the transcripts of a UK parliamentary debate. Um, And that list just keeps going. And so it's so old that we really don't know where that phrase came from. And I think this phrase is so old because it's true, or at least the point that it's trying to communicate. And really, it's at the heart, I think, of what James was trying to get across in the passage that we're looking at this morning. And I think this passage that we're looking at this morning is really at the heart of this entire letter. Like, if we picked one text from James to express the central theme of everything he's trying to get us to see, I think it's our text this morning. And so really, it's this question. Do our actions reflect our words? Put differently, does our faith work? Is it real? Is it genuine? What does it look like? What does it do? And how do we know for sure? And so this morning, with Evan away, I'm going to have to ask us these questions. We're going to answer some of them this morning. And listen, for some of us, that's going to be difficult. Because James here is challenging us. He's intentionally challenging his readers to test their faith, to stretch them to their limits, to see if they prove genuine or not. And so this morning, I'm going to push hard on some of us because that's what this text does. And so if you're new here, Evan, um, our, our lead pastor, he does things, we sometimes call them dad talks when he has hard conversations with us. And so this morning, uh, Evan's not here, so you get um, a dad talk from me. So we're going to see how that goes. But I'm going to ask you these questions, and um, I'm going to ask them because I love you. And it's not because I, I want you to question or doubt your faith but it's because I want you to have confidence in it. This morning, I want us to test our faith and come out with the assurance that God gives because God allows us to have that insurance. I'm gonna push hard today because I don't want any of us to have false assurance of faith. And we know that's a thing because the Bible says it's a thing. And so this morning, I want us to test our faith so we can either find that we lack it and have an opportunity to gain that which has eluded us or to find that our faith is true and genuine and that we can have a renewed confidence that it's there. And so this morning, I'm going to ask you to track with me because probably like the first half of this might be difficult to hear, but just like living in this world, if we're willing to persevere with faith, there's a blessing that comes at the end, which will be worth it. And so with that, we're going to jump back into James chapter 2, and we're going to look first at verses 14 through 17. Verse 14 says this, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? And James here raises the question, can you really say you believe if you don't live like it's true? That's the question, and James' answer is no. And then James gives that answer in a really profound and, for me, convicting way. Listen closely. Verse 15. 
If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. See, James asked this rhetorical question about a brother in need to illustrate the point that to say you have faith without living like it's true isn't faith at all. But to truly understand its answer, it's important that we understand the illustration. Because in it, James summarizes and defines a fundamental aspect of what it means to have this true and genuine faith. And so the last time I was up here, I got to talk to you guys about the love of stranger, hospitality, and that was an integral part of what it means to be God's people. And so this morning, and with these few verses, I want to press hard on what it means to love God's family. See, I don't think it's an accident that James' example of true faith involves not only the least of these, but the needs and the needy within the family. And I think what he's communicating is that whatever it means, whatever it means to have true faith, it starts here. It starts at home. And so listen, there's some significant ways in which we as a family here at Northeast do this really well. And I'm so thankful that I get to be a part of a family that cares for one another and values time together and puts together meal trains and shows up for our neighborhood when, when we reach out to them. But this week, God put it on my heart to also challenge us in the ways that we aren't rising to the occasion. And so with Evan away, I just want to take the opportunity to talk to you, my brothers and sisters. And so here's what I just, I just feel like I need to say. Listen, Jesus tells us that where our heart is, our treasure will be also. And, and that where we put our money tells others and tells us what we truly value. And the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should make their living by the gospel. And whether it be one of the three tithes that are there in the Old Testament or the example that the apostles gave, God's people have always been called to provide for his church and his ministers who serve God by serving them. And so here's what I'm trying to get at. Liberty Northeast, four years old. There's enough of us now that Evan shouldn't be raising almost his entire salary every year via the generosity of the people outside of our church. More pointed, the only reason that Evan and his family aren't poorly clothed and hungry is because people outside of our assembly are doing the work that we should be doing here. And that's not okay. And so there's people in this room who give faithfully and generously, and it stretches them, and I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to those of us who come here every week, and we say amen, and we sing our songs, and we, we listen to the sermons, and when we have problems, we call Evan and he answers, and when we have tragedy in our life, he shows up, but by the way that we give or don't, we've decided that his work has no value or that it's worthless. And as another pastor that works a full-time job so that I can be here, and as a pastor who's getting ready to plant a new church, it scares me to think that for the rest of my life, I might have to work like a dog to make up for the lack of generosity of the people I cry for and pray for and love so much. 
And so listen, I don't know how much any of you individually give to support everything that Evan does here or that we as a church do here, but I know how much my wife and I give, and I can do the math to figure out how many of us it would take to fully support this place, and it's not that many. And we take attendance every week, and we have membership here, so I know how many of us call this place home and call Evan Pastor, and I can do the math to figure out how much each of us would have to give to share that burden, to fully fund this place and make sure that Evan and his family are fed, and that number, what we'd have to give, is embarrassingly low. And yet, as of this week, there's a $14,000 deficit in our budget, and that's not because Evan's spending it on himself or we as a church are unwise with our money but it's because we are committed to generosity. Our leaders are committed to giving to those in need. When somebody calls and has a problem, we do everything that we can to meet that. And what breaks my heart is that every time one of us has to talk about provision or a need for it, it's the same people who already give so much who choose to give more. And so to be clear, this isn't me trying to guilt anyone into giving. I don't want your guilt money. Neither does God. God doesn't need our money to provide for his people. In fact, someone outside of our congregation already heard about this deficit and committed two-thirds of that number. And so we're going to praise the Lord for that. We should praise the Lord for that, that he provides. But I'm also going to mourn the fact that God had to go elsewhere to clothe and feed a church that probably has the money in this room. And so listen, if you're somebody who has a balance within your finances such that you value God and his ministry and what he's doing here, and you provide for those in need, and you also enjoy that which God has given you, for you and your family, he wants you to do that. If that's you, thank you. And thank you for being faithful. But for those of us who don't give out of our first fruits, listen, that's Cain. And God loves you, but he's not pleased with the scraps that we give. And this morning, God's saying to us, like he said to people before, I don't want your sacrifices, I want your obedience. So please hear me. I want you to give because you love God and you love his family. And I want you to see them fed because you love Evan and you want to see his family provided for because God says that's our job. And I want you to do it cheerfully because you believe in the mission of Northeast to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in our neighborhood. And I want you to give because your faith is real, and when it's pushed or tested, it goes to work, and it puts its money where its mouth is. And I want you to give because God hasn't withheld anything from us. He gave us his son and gave us his place in the family and at his table, so of course we'll give back. It's his anyways. And so James chapter 2, verses 14 through 17 tells us that faith without works is worthless. And the way he illustrates that is this, this point back to a, cri a base criteria for genuine faith, telling us that genuine faith takes care of and provides for its people in the ways that a family should. And right now and in this way, that's not us. And so I don't want you to give because you feel guilty. But I do want to challenge us and pre pre present us with an area that we need to be tested and confronted because it might be sin. 
But so much more important than that, I want to remind you that Christ paved the road to repentance with his blood so that when you feel the weight of your guilt or your shame, you can leave it on the cross because he crucified it there. And we can move forward in freedom knowing that he, and in this case I, aren't going to hold it against you. But James is saying here that faith without works, it's worthless. But he's also reminding us that a faith that works is freeing and it's worth it. And so there's that. That's what I had to say. And, and as James continues in these, these first few verses where he pushed really hard on his family with the hope that those who need that push would respond with active faith, proven genuine by their conviction and will to move forward in repentance, he also shows us how some will respond. And so look with me at verse 18 through 23. He says, but some of you will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness, and he was called the friend of God. We'll stop there for a moment. So there's, there's really two things I want us to see there. And it's first, if you're someone listening to James this morning and you're trying to argue with him, listen, you might be wrestling because you don't believe or you don't want to believe what he's saying is true. Or maybe you're counting the cost right now and living life the way that Christ has called us to and you don't want to. And if that's you, listen, I love you. You might not have a faith that works. And if you say, but I believe in God, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for sin. I prayed that prayer one time. I come to church. Look again at what James says right here in verse 19. He says, there's some things that you can believe that make you no better than demons. And so I told you first that faith without works is worthless. And James is saying next that there's a faith without works that's wicked. And so James is warning us here that there's a kind of faith that just makes you no better than those outside the family, even enemies of God. And here's where this distinction between genuine, true, saving faith and worthless and wicked ones hinge. See, it's one thing to believe that Jesus is God or even that he's Savior, but it's everything to acknowledge that he's Lord. See, if we for a moment just kind of empty our brains, maybe of Sunday school, uh, of, of things that we adopted, and, and we just enter into God's holy word, we find within it the gospel. The good news in the Old Testament was always that God is king and he's coming to reclaim his kingdom and restore his people. And in the four Gospels before Christ was even crucified, he sent out his disciples in pairs of two to preach the good news that the gospel of God, the the kingdom was at hand, that the time was near. 
and post-crucifixion, after the resurrection, the gospel message was that the Christ had come and had conquered and is now seated at the right hand of the Father, victorious Lord. And the good news of the gospel has always been that God is Lord. And what made him such a good king was that even though king, he decided to also become Savior and to offer himself as an act of generosity and radical love to a people in rebellion. And so listen to me, even demons recognize that Christ died and rose for the forgiveness of sin. But that's not enough to receive grace. Instead, it's how we respond to Jesus as Lord that influences the kind of relationship that the two of you will have. And it's only after the recognition that he is Lord and repentance for our rebellion that he becomes for us Savior. And so I might be scaring some of you this morning as I say that. That might sound radically new or different even, but listen, it's not heresy It's actually just the same message that's proclaimed over and over again in the Torah, in the writings and the prophets, and fulfilled by John the Baptist when he says, repent for the kingdom's at hand. And it's the same message that Jesus preached in passages like Matthew 4 when he says, repent for the kingdom of God is here. It's all about Jesus as king. That's the good news. And how we respond to that will determine if he becomes for us savior also. Over and over again in the book of Acts, when asked how one may be saved, they say, first repent, then believe for forgiveness of sins. Romans 10, first confess that Jesus is Lord, and second, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. This has always been the way. And so here's what James is saying and what I'm saying, that if you believe that he's king, you will live like that's true. And living like that's true means submitting to the will of the Father like Christ submitted to the Father. And having faith in our Lord means living like he's Lord. And what's amazing about the story that comes next, what's amazing about the story of Abraham and his son is that in it we see that after Abraham's willing to give everything and trusting that God's way is best, we're reminded of the promises of God and how he always provides a way, never withholding anything from us, such that we don't need to have fear of the consequences of loss, fear of anything we give away, fear of anything, even death, because that substitute has been provided for us. And we don't have to have anxieties that cause us to withhold anything from God because we recognize that it all belongs to him and we trust him to provide that which was needed because that's what he's always done for us. And I love this story of Abraham and his son in Genesis 22, and so I want to read that to you this morning. Genesis 22, beginning in verse 1. It says, After these things God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And Isaac said to his father Abraham, my father, and he said, here I am. He said, behold the fire and the wood, 
but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. And when they came to the place to which God had told them, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac, his son, and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took his knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So for all the ways I've heard this text interpreted before, it goes without saying that Abraham's faith was tested. But by his actions, the the genuineness of his faith was proven true. And I don't know what Abraham ultimately believed God would do that day, if he believed that God would resurrect his son or that he would provide the ram as he did, but no one can doubt that he trusted in God and that he saw him as Lord. And in that, he withheld nothing from him, even his son. And so in this, we're reminded that there's a faith that's worthless And a faith that's wicked, but modeled by Abraham, there's also a faith that works. And when it does, we find on the other end a Lord and a Savior who takes our burdens and a God who provides. And in this example with Abraham and Isaac, as reminded by James in verse 24, he says, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And here's all we need to say about that this morning. Our lack of understanding is what has led to the debates pitting faith against works. But God's word teaches us that that's a false dichotomy. Like for us who believe, we know that true faith alone leads us out of rebellion and into an obedience motivated by love. But we also, those who have been justified, know that true faith is a faith that works because our Lord first loved and worked for us. So it's not the works that save us. It's grace through faith. But true faith, when tested, is proven genuine and authentic by the works that inescapably follow. And so what we see and what James is communicating is that faith without works is no faith at all. It's dead, it's worthless, it's wicked. That's the point he's making. And we know this is true. The scriptures attest to it. They will know we are Christians by our what? Love. And Christ showed his love for us and that while we were still sinners, he what? Died for us. And if we love God, we'll do what? Keep his love commands. And as he said to Peter, if, uh, G- Jesus says, if you love me, what will you do? Feed my sheep. So adoption into God's family is free. It's always free. Christ paid that price, but being a part of his family means working the family business. But what a good job that is. 
working alongside our Father and with Jesus, our Lord, but also our brother who makes the burden light and who provides everything that we need, withholding nothing from us, not even his son, not even his life. This is the Lord we so freely follow, even when it seems hard or when he calls us to give or to share what we have in order to be vessels of his provision for our brothers and sisters. And listen, with the example that I challenged us with today, I just really want to be clear. This isn't me talking down to you. I'm in it with you. I'm preaching to myself. And I'll never be the one to tell you how much to give, uh, but I will tell you that he calls all of us to do it. And I don't want anyone's response this morning to be given out of guilt. God doesn't want it. But I will ask you to test your hearts and your faith and ask the Lord if this is an area where he wants you to grow. He calls all of us to generosity. And I want you to ask God where and how much he wants you to give. And I want you to be, um, to oblige his, whatever he gives you that you will respond with a true faith, with gladness, recognizing that it's worth it. And I want you to give because baked into generosity is this blessing and gift that's freeing and good, and it can only be described by those who have faithfully experienced it. And as we finish this chapter, James gives yet another example of the kind of working faith he's talking about. In verse 25 and 26, 26. He says, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And I'm so thankful that James chose these two examples that he did. First, the father of the faith, a Hebrew man of prosperity and promise. And then Rahab, this Gentile prostitute of an unknown family of low status, this woman who risks her life withholding not even that in faith to the Father, seeing him as Lord and responding in kind. And God uses her faith to help bring his people into the promised land. And then he adopts her into his family and made her a mother in the line of Jesus, our Lord and Savior. And so listen, in that we see that there's nothing that you could have done, uh, are doing, or will do that could keep you from Jesus' invitation to repent and believe in him as Lord and then receive him as Savior. The door will always be open to you, but you have to walk through it. How you respond matters, and it's not enough to say you believe. You have to live like it's true. And so Jesus, through James and James, through me, is pushing hard this morning, testing your faith in hopes that you will, you will find it revealed how genuine it is. And you will know by how you respond when faced with the reality of your rebellion, but also the reality of the resurrected Christ and Lord. So will you continue in rebellion, or will you turn to Christ in repentance? And if you're here or listening and you feel conviction over the challenge of this text, or if you're wrestling with me or arguing with me in your heart, explore that. And if you're here and the example I used doesn't apply to you, consider how else you may be living in disobedience. Where does what you say you believe contradict how you're living? 
And then test that, explore that, and know also that I'm not saying uh, any of this as if I figured it out or if somehow I'm separating myself from you all. I'm preaching to myself here. We're in this together, one family. Last night I was talking to someone and they reminded me and they encouraged me uh, of this in verse 23 in our text. It, It says this, that Abraham was called a friend of God. that God considers us friends. And how amazing is that? And as we talked about that, he reminded me that we don't have to beg our friends to spend time with each other. And we don't have to plead with our friends when we need help. So let's be friends in return. And let's be friends to one another. And so what would it look like to love God that way? And what would it look like to love each other here and Evan and his family this way? What would it look like to take care of each other? And is God challenging you this morning with that call? And if he is, listen to this from Proverbs chapter 1, verse 23. Wisdom speaking says, if you turn at my reproof, behold, I'll pour out my spirit to you. And so I don't care about the money this morning. I don't care. I just want that for you. I want God to pour out his spirit on you. So listen, a faith without works, it's worthless and it's wicked, but a faith that works is freeing and it's rewarding and it leads to a life and a family and a kingdom with God. A faith that works is worth it. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, thank you for your word and everything that's there for us to see, even when it's hard and difficult and challenging and convicting and uncomfortable. Lord, thank you that It's a reality that we're going to be faced with our own shame and guilt. But Lord, thank you that you put that on your cross and and crucified it there so that we can leave it there. We can walk away in the freedom that only you can offer. Lord, I pray for all of us in this room, if we felt that challenge today, if we felt guilt, if we felt shame, Lord, that we would leave it there and move forward freely with you. Lord, I pray that we would walk in faith this morning that our faith when tested would be proven, genuine, and true, and we'd live that way as well. And so we ask these things in your name. Amen.